I invite you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. And as we lead into this text in Galatians 5, I just want to take a moment and um, you know, some might be wondering, uh, maybe not a lot, but some here may be wondering, why in the world do we sing like that? Um, it's kind of a strange thing for people to gather together and to sing like we do. Um, if you have been around church for a while, you are familiar with that, but it could be kind of strange if you think about it for a moment. But the reason that we sing is because we have something to sing about. Uh, there's a God in heaven who has had mercy on us and has saved us from our sins. We believe that each person in this world is a sinner. We've been born into sin, and a sinner is somebody who rebels against God, and that is the case for every single person on planet Earth. And if you understand sin, you understand that sin is always against a holy God. The God who made everything, the God who owns everything, has been offended by his creatures' rebellion against him. But God has had mercy on these creatures. It says in his word that Christ came to save sinners. And that's really good news because the wages of sin is death. It's eternal destruction. It's a place called hell that the Bible has no problem talking about, no reservations about the reality of its existence. It is a place where people face the fury of God's wrath for an eternity because of their rebellion against him. But God in his love has given his son to rescue us from that condemnation, from his wrath that we are justly due because of our sin against him. And the way that we are saved from this is by God's own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, coming to earth, taking on uh, flesh like us, he was a human who died on a cross, a brutal death, in our place. And as he died on that cross, a great exchange happened. For those who trust in Jesus Christ, our sins were punished on God's Son, so that we might receive the life and the reward that God's Son actually deserves so that we can be forgiven of all of our sins, so that we can inherit eternal life and be with God forever and not be punished in hell. And the way that you receive this good gift is not by being good enough. In fact, the reason why you need this gift is because you're not good enough. And the way that you receive it is simply by trusting in Jesus Christ. It is to say, I can't do this. I can't earn God's favor. I need somebody else to stand in my place Jesus Christ, I believe, has done that, and I receive that good gift. I can't add anything to it. It's all of God's grace to me. You acknowledge that before God. You confess your sins. You turn and you trust Jesus Christ. And when you do that, now you have something to sing about. And so we gather on Sundays to remember that on the first day of the week, Jesus rose from the dead in victory over sin and victory over death so that his people can always be forgiven of sin and so that his people can always look forward to eternal life with God. And so we sing on Sunday mornings in praise to our God who saves sinners. The story really continues in Scripture because 
after Jesus rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven and he is there now at the right hand of God the Father. And it says that he's interceding for us. That means he's there on our behalf, representing those who trust in him. But after he ascended, Jesus Christ sent his Holy Spirit to be with his people so that we would no longer live on our own strength and our own power, but that we would be able to live a new life, no longer entrenched in the sin that once dominated us, but now living a life that God wants us to live, a life like Jesus Christ, full of love for God and love for others. And so we have the Spirit who now dwells with us and in us, and so because He's there with us, we have to sing. We have to give praise to our God in heaven for what He's done for us. The book of Galatians lays out this good news for us, and we've been studying it for the past several months, and it tells us that the only way we can receive a declaration by God that we're not guilty is not by doing lots of good works on our own strength, but by trusting Jesus Christ died on the cross. And when we trust that Jesus died for us, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit who comes to abide with us so that we can live a new life in Christ. And we come to this text in Galatians that is helping us to understand what this new life looks like in the power of the Holy Spirit and how different and distinct it is from our old life. And it's laid out for us the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And it tells us that those things are really ours by the Spirit and are to be displayed in our life. Those are things that we didn't possess before we knew Christ, but things that should be shown in our life now. But now the question kind of comes to bear on us, well, how do we see these things in our life in a practical way? What should it look like in our life to have this Spirit living in us? And our text in Galatians really unpacks that for us. And so let me read Galatians chapter 5, verses 25 through chapter 6, verse 5, and it will help us to understand more of this life that we are to live by the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. Let us pray. Father, help us to understand your message to us this morning from your word. I ask that you would help us to be discerning and believing and obedient in response to what we learned from your word this morning. Father, I pray that we would not try to think of this passage as just relevant for other people or for other times in our life, but that we would see we need it right now, here 
even in these moments and for the rest of the day. Oh Lord, let us see the significance of this, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul says in verse 25, Galatians 5, that if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. That is a charge to anyone who has experienced that new life that the Holy Spirit brings into us, that we are now to live in accordance with the Holy Spirit's leading. This passage has shown us, actually this whole section of Galatians has told us, uh, life in the Spirit is so important. In verse 16 of chapter 5, it says, But I say, walk by the Spirit. In verse 18, it says, If you are led by the Spirit. And then again in verse 25, If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. This is something that we are all to experience for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, a spirit life or a spiritual life is often misconstrued. A lot of people will say, you know, I'm, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. And by spiritual, they just mean that they have this inner sense inside of themselves about the way that they should go. That's not what spiritual is implying in this text, nor is that what a spirit-led life is like. A spirit-led life is one that follows the leading of the spirit, and the leading of the spirit is a crystal clear path to bear the fruit of the spirit. Notice in this passage how much the spirit-led life involves the people around you. In chapter 5, verse 13, it kind of sets the tone for us. It says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And that kicks off for us this understanding that a spirit-led or a spirit-filled life or a life that walks by the spirit is going to be a life that is directed towards how we treat one another. It says in 5 verse 15, But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. And so not only is the positive side of things presented to us about what life in the Spirit looks like in the good sense towards one another, but also if you're not living by the Spirit, here's what life will look like. It will also involve the people around you, but this time it won't be so pleasant. You're going to bite and devour one another. In chapter 6, verse 2, it says, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. All of this is a display of a life by the Spirit. And so I want you to see how you are to keep in step with the Spirit is primarily through how you treat others. But you're going to see that how we treat others largely depends also on how we think of ourselves. One commentary says that we are shown that our conduct to others is determined by our opinion of ourselves. And so the, the first step here in keeping in step with the Spirit is to not be conceited. That's what Paul says in chapter 5, verse 26. Let us not become conceited. So if you want to keep in step 
with the Spirit, or if you want to bear the fruit of the Spirit, don't become conceited. That word conceit is uh, variously translated. I think uh, the KJV says vain glory. There is a reason for that. It's because this word is a combination of two words. Kenos, which means vain, and doxa, which means glory. And so you put them together, it's vain glory or empty glory. It basically means somebody who is boasting but has no reason to boast. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let us be the entire disposition of our lives. That we go around not thinking of ourselves as the most important person in the room, but everybody else in the room are the most important people in the room. We have this great tendency towards conceit because we are so selfish. And this kind of conceit manifests itself in provoking one another and envying one another. Conceited people have a superior opinion of themselves than is deserved. And so they basically walk into a room and think, I'm right. I don't even know what the argument is, but I'm right. And when you bring that kind of attitude with you, you are going to be provocative because you are just ready to show somebody else that they are wrong and that you are right. And that results in strife and discord. It's not motivated by love for others. Now, you may have the tendency of being right about things, but that doesn't mean that you need to walk into the room and show it to everybody who's there. But conceited people, or people who really have no reason to boast, are just ready to provoke others by showing that they are superior to everybody else. They provoke people to arguments. And so Paul again says, let us not become conceited. Well, how is your conceit manifest? Provoking other people. Do you find that strife just follows you around? Do you find that arguments are easy for you? Do you find it's easy to get into some sort of verbal spat or harbor some bitterness against somebody else? I'm sorry to break it to you, but that may be an indication that you are a conceited person. You think too highly of yourself. You think that your opinion matters more than everybody else. There's another way that conceit is manifest. It's also in envying. Paul says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Oh, you may not walk into the room and think that you know better than everybody else. You may walk into the room and think everybody else knows better than you, and how dare they? How, are, how could they be better than me? I hate being the lowest person in the room. I hate being the one who doesn't know anything. I deserve to be the best person. I deserve to be the smartest or most handsome or the most welcomed or the most popular. I hate it that they get all the attention and I don't. 
But did you know that's another form of conceit? Because you think you deserve something that other people have. And you're jealous of them that they have it. And it comes back to that selfish disposition because you think that you deserve what other people have and they don't deserve it. That's conceit. And if you want to walk by the Spirit or keep in step with the Spirit and you are conceited, you have a roadblock at the very first step because the fruit of the Spirit is going to be manifest in how you treat other people. And if you are constantly envying them or provoking them, you cannot bear the fruit of the Spirit in your life. You will be devoid of the fruit. The essence of the fruit of the Spirit is to be others-oriented. And that is to live with humility and kindness. But if you're boastful, or if you're envious, the only room you have in your life is for you. I would encourage you to spend some time considering, considering where conceit exists in your life. And to try to find that out, look where those provocations happen. Or look where that envying happens. And then don't go too far before you go to the Lord. Confess that to Him. Ask Him to replace your envy or your pride with love and humility. But keep in step with the Spirit by turning away from conceit. Second, keep in step with the Spirit by restoring others caught in sin. Keep in step with the Spirit by restoring others caught in sin. Chapter 6, verse 1. But if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Now, our passage gets pretty practical about how to keep in step with the Spirit here. Where might you look to put into practice keeping in step with the Spirit? Well, the very place where the Spirit met you. Being rescued from sin. This is a work of the Spirit to rescue you from sin. And so it seems to make sense that one of the first places that you would look to live by the Spirit and walk by the Spirit would be to help others who are caught in sin get out of that sin. The situation that's being described here is a pretty general one. It just says, if anyone is caught in any transgression. So it doesn't really matter who it is, and it doesn't really matter what the sin is. The point is that somebody is caught in it. And the word caught is indicating someone who's kind of been overtaken, almost in a surprise sense, by some sin. You might think of someone like Cain, who brought an offering to the Lord that was not accepted. 
And the Lord spoke to Cain in Genesis 4, 6 through 8, and said, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. You find Cain in this situation where he's offered an acceptable sacrifice. There seems to be sin surrounding him. He's caught there. The Lord is offering him a way out. But he doubles down, and we know what happens next. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. It seems that the first part of that time before Cain killed his brother was really the time where someone was trying to, the Lord was intervening in his life to rescue him from the transgression that had come up around him. You probably know people, or perhaps you yourself have experience this where you find yourself caught in a sin and it come, can come about with some suddenness. Maybe the person that you can think of who's caught in a sin is just loosely aware of their sin. Maybe they don't know the full depths of it and you can see better than they can what is going on in their life and the path that they're heading down. They know that right at the door, sin is crouching and just ready to devour them. If you see somebody like that who's caught in any transgression, here's what you need to do. You who are spiritual should restore him. First, it tells us what kind of people are to do this? These are to be spiritual people. And again, to be a spiritual person is not to be somebody who has all these whims of the inner person who is kind of led in different directions at different times. This is the person who is bearing the fruit of the Spirit. That's what a spiritual person is. If you're bearing the fruit of the Spirit in your life, then you are the kind of person who is equipped to help somebody around you who is caught in any transgression. This spiritual person needs to restore. The reason for this is because if you have a log sticking out of your own eye, it's going to be hard to see accurately enough to get the speck out of somebody else's. And so you need to have let the Spirit done His own work in your own heart so that you can help others who are dealing with sin as well. It's a spiritual person who should restore Him. If you know that you are knee-deep in sin and you see somebody else who is ankle-deep in sin, Don't go try to help them. You need to get out of the mud first. But if you've found that the Spirit has really rescued you, it doesn't mean that you're sinless, but you know that He's done a good work in your life and really put you on a path where you see His work in you. Well, then you have a responsibility in keeping in step with the Spirit, and that's to restore this person who's caught in any transgression. 
The word restore has the idea of putting something back into its original position. It could be a broken bone that's set back together, or as it's used in Matthew 4.21, when Jesus calls the disciples, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with their father, mending their nets. He called them. They're getting their nets fixed back to their position where they'll do the job of catching fish. And so this is what restoration is. It's to get a person who's caught in a transgression to get back into the position that they ought to be in. This does not say that the person who is restored is to be bashed into oblivion with shame. They're not to be shunned. They're not to be ambushed. They are to be restored. And the way restoration happens is often by gentle rebuke. That's why we are to restore him in a spirit of gentleness. It's so easy to see somebody who's not living how you know they should be and just take a big stick and start beating them into the ground. But that's not the way spiritual people are to handle this, and that's not the way the Lord handled you. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Somebody who's in the depths of sin is a person who needs to be brought out, but without crushing them. Well, you call them to repentance. You hold out the word of life to them. You show them the way that God calls them to live. But in gentleness, the opposite of gentleness would be pride. Gentleness and humility go hand in hand. And so you go to this person and call them to walk in a path of holiness and seek to get them back into that position that they were once in. And you do it gently. And as you do this, you need to keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. If you find yourself in the position of restoring someone in their walk in the Lord, you need to pay attention to yourself. That is to evaluate yourself. Keep watch on yourself. Well, how might you be tempted? Well, you might be tempted to be proud. That's probably the most obvious one because Paul said, again in verse 26, let us not become conceited. If you see somebody who's caught in a sin that you're not caught in at that moment, we might be tempted to say, I am so much better than they are. I can't believe they would do that. I would never, ever in a thousand years do anything like they just did. I would never say that, think that, do that. And you become puffed up and proud. Oh, what a dangerous thing is to think when you see somebody who sins, I would never do that. No temptation has come to you except what is common to man. We all have the same corrupt heart all capable 
of horrible evils. And if you see somebody who's caught in a transgression and you see or you think, I would never do that, you don't understand the wickedness of your own heart. So watch out, lest you too be tempted. Keep watch on yourself. So we keep in step with the Spirit as we seek to put conceit to death in our lives, as we seek to restore people who are caught in transgression. That's loving. It's unloving just to leave them in the muck and mire of sin. And so one of the main ways that we see the fruit of the Spirit is by helping people to walk in the Spirit. And the third way that we keep in step with the Spirit is bearing one another's burdens. Bearing one another's burdens. Verse 2 simply says, Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Those who are keeping in step with the Spirit will come alongside others and help to carry their burden. A burden is a weight that is uncomfortable or impossible to carry. It's say, this word is used in Matthew chapter 20, verses 11 and 12, when there have been workers who have been uh, in a garden working all day and they receive their pay and they grumble at the master of the house saying, these last worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. So there the word is used to describe workers who work during the heat of noontime. The sun's beating down on them. They're working outside. They're sweating. It's hard. It's miserable. It's difficult labor. It's uncomfortable. You probably intuitively know what a burden is. You've felt it in your own life. As you just walk through life, it just seems like you pick up a new one every day. You just kind of see it on the roadside and toss it into the back pack that you're holding. It could be a hurting relationship, could be a tough boss, it could be being put out of work, could be a wayward child, could be some loss in your life, could be dealing with a difficult spouse, it could be facing a dilemma you just have no clue what to do, it could be a season of despair, hopelessness. It could be a physical malady that you have to live with. These are all burdens. Things that are uncomfortable. Things that are hard to bear and sometimes impossible to bear. And the command here is bear one another's burdens. To bear somebody else's burden is to come alongside them, and to help them with what they're struggling with. Now, the application of that is so vast, you can't begin to outline it. 
in our church, I've been so encouraged to see people do this. As people give rides to doctor's appointments or bring meals to those who are sick or those who just come alongside somebody who's hurting, give them a hug and pray for them. Or as good godly counsel is given to somebody who's just lost in the woods and doesn't know which way is up. These are all examples of bearing one another's burdens. And you can see how loving this is because it takes somebody who's looking past their own problems to be able to see that there are problems all around you that you can come alongside others and help them with. When you're conceited or proud, all you're thinking of is yourself and you can't see past the end of your own nose. But if you just look up for a second, you will realize that pretty much everybody around you has struggles in their life, difficulties, despair, discouragement, depression, hard relationships. And they cannot walk through it on their own. And so God's people evidencing this new life are to come alongside one another and walk through those valleys together. That's bearing one another's burden. And it says that as you do this, at the end of verse 2, you fulfill the law of Christ. In John 13, 34, Jesus said this to his disciples, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. That's the law of Christ. And you see that in his own life because Christ came not to fix his own problems. He had none. He's perfect. So everything that he endured was for the sake of others. And he came to bear our burden, to lift off of our shoulders, our own guilt, our own condemnation. Hear what Jesus said again, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Romans 15, 1 through 3 says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. The ultimate example of the law of Christ is the love that Christ displayed at Calvary. And so as we now realize we are under grace, but however, we're not free from any kind of law, we're actually under the law of Christ, which means that we follow Christ, we follow a person, his example, and his commands. And as we do so, it will be eminently displayed as we bear one another's burdens. I hope that you have tasted something of receiving the blessing of somebody coming alongside you and bearing your burden. You have to understand, however, that there seems to be an implicit caveat to this, that 
if we are to bear one another's burdens, we need to let other people bear our burdens. Some of us are so stubborn that we won't let other people into our lives. We think we can do it all. I got this. I can handle this. I don't need help. Get away. I'm fine. Yeah, my car broke down. My dog is dead. My wife has cancer. I just lost my job, but I got this. We can't live that way. It doesn't have to be big things either. You have to have the humility to realize that God has put around you many of the solutions to the problems that you face. Oh, maybe the the problems don't go away. But the difficulty of bearing that burden will be lessened by somebody coming alongside you and weeping with those who weep, helping those who need help. I think... When Paul says in verse 3, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. He is helping us to understand that conceit and pride are the things that get in the way of bearing one another's burdens on both sides of the equation. If you are proud and don't receive help, well, you're deceiving yourself. If you're proud and you don't give help, well, you're deceiving yourself. Because you think that you're something, but you're nothing. We're but dust. Yes, we're made in the image of God. We have intrinsic value in that way, but we have to realize that all that we have is given to us by God, and we're not to be proud. In verse 4 and 5, we get an antidote to the pride that we feel. He says, but let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Now this might sound confusing at first glance, but really what Paul is doing is having laid out the foundation that we are to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. He really hones in on the individual who is dealing with conceit and pride and helps them to think through their own pride. And one of the ways you can battle that is by just testing your own work. Look thoroughly at your own life. And he says, basically, don't look to others. Don't try to boast in comparison to others. It's so easy to do that. We see people around us who we're doing better. Maybe we're making more money. Maybe we seem to have a more put-together family. Maybe we have a better car, a better job. We think, I'm doing a lot better than that guy. But this text is basically saying, stop comparing yourself to other people. And evaluate yourself on the basis of your own life. Test your own work. Test your own work in accordance with the word of God. With the command of Christ to love our neighbor as ourself or to love just as he loved. And then as you do that, you will find that any grounds for boasting is not in comparison to somebody else but really based on the work that God has done in your own life. And verse 5 ends by saying, for each will have to bear his own load. Now before we think that this is 
work salvation or denies that we have to bear one another's burden, the event that's being looked at here is the end judgment. Verse 4 is future tense, that his reason to boast will be in himself. In verse 5 is future tense, for each will have to bear his own load. The point is that when you stand before God, you're not going to be evaluated based on the other people who you always compared yourself to. You're going to be evaluated based on your own life. And it's so important to draw a quick distinction here. It says in Romans 8, chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ, you will not face the wrath of God. The penalty has been paid, you have been declared righteous, and you are found innocent before God. That will stand fast until the day of Christ. What Paul is talking about here is that idea that's held for us in Scripture, like in Romans 14, verse 12, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And as you appear before Christ, you are not going to be judged on the basis of whether you're going to heaven or hell if you're in Christ. But the manner of what you did with the salvation that's been given to you will be evaluated. And that's what Paul means when he says each one will have to bear his own load. That means when you stand before Christ, he will evaluate you on the basis of how you lived out the salvation that he freely gave you. Not for heaven and hell, but for reward. You can see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15, which says, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Brothers and sisters, we must walk by the Spirit and bear fruit of the Spirit. It is incumbent on you to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And the way that you do that is by loving those around you, putting to death pride in you, bearing one another's burdens. And if it's upon you to gently restore those who are caught in sin, we will be evaluated for this by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Let's pray. Father, help us to keep in step with the Spirit. Put to death in us any conceit that exists. 
Help us to restore those who are caught in sin and to do so gently. And I would ask also that you would help us to bear one another's burdens. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.